Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Excellent. Well, why don't I go ahead and uh, open us up in prayer, and we will get started. We pray with me. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you that uh, you've brought us here together tonight, and we ask, Lord, that as we consider the weighty and monumental task of um, worshiping you as a family, um, that we would um, do so with uh, reverence and um, great fear and awe, but also joy, because you are a God who uh, are in, is enthroned in, the, in our praises. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to, to learn more um, how to praise you and how to enthrone you in our praises. I pray that you'd please guard my, guard my words, and um, may they be your words and the ones that are not. Uh, may they be stricken from the memory of everyone here tonight. Thank you, Father, for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, my talk is called Lord's Day Worship, or excuse me, not Lord's Day Worship, Family Worship 24-7, or 24-7 Family Worship. You can put it in either order. The idea is still the same, and we're going to talk about family worship as a general concept, Uh, but before we do that, I want to set the stage, so to speak, with um, a couple of passages from the Old Testament that might seem a little bit unrelated to family worship uh, as, as such, but but stick with me, and, uh, and I'll, I'll see if you guys can tell me afterwards whether or not they hook, actually hook together or not. But um, the other thing is, unless I'm reading scripture, please feel free to interrupt me, ask questions. I've got lots of notes. We can ignore them all and answer questions too. So um, This comes from Genesis chapter 18, uh, starting with verse 16 through verse 33. Um, and the, the pretext for this is that the Lord has heard that the, the wickedness of Sodom is great, And so he's come down to inspect the city, and he has seen that it is indeed very great, and in fact, um, that the city needs to be um, wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, He's got a scorched earth policy going on. Um, And so we're going to see something interesting happens between God and Abraham. So that's the the context. It says, Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. Uh, Again, this is Genesis 18, starting with verse 16. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them away. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 
Then the men turned away from there and went, to, and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should, not be, should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. He said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, the second passage I want to read to you um, is similar. Um, it's uh, another interaction between Moses and God. And this one comes from Exodus 32. So we're going to talk about that passage I just read in a minute. But right now, turn, if you will, if you want, uh, to Exodus 32. Otherwise, I will read it. This one's a shorter passage. It's only four verses, 11 to 14. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants that they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so these two passages are... Um, they're wonderful passages in their kind of their um, um, surprising, the, the, the surprising nature of, of God, uh, the idea that God takes on um, counsel from man. Um, so we've been learning here under Pastor Ventura um, the idea of first principles in, uh, as we learn theology. And so the first principle we've all been learning again and again and again is that God has not a body. He doesn't have a body. That's a first principle. So when Scripture talks about the arm of the Lord or the eyes of the Lord, it's not talking about God having a body because the first principle tells us that the second principle has to be subservient to the first. God doesn't have a body but he metaphorically has an arm. He metaphorically has eyes. So a first principle about God is that he's immutable. He never changes. Nothing changes the sovereign will of God. Uh, and yet, um, we have these two passages here where God is quite, um, quite literally listening to sinful man, and he's making his decisions based off of what man is telling him, what Abraham's telling him, and what Moses is telling him. 
Um, so this would be um, this passage would have to come underneath the overarching heading that God is sovereign uh, and that He's immutable; He doesn't change. And yet, that's not what the passage is trying to teach us. It's not trying to teach us that God is in fact mutable uh, or that He uh, can be persuaded one way or the other. Um, but it is to tell us something about his relationship with us, his saints. Um, both of these men, Abraham and Moses, um, were saints in, in, the, in the technical sense that they had access to God. That's what a saint is. They have, a saint has access to the sanctuary. And so both of these men, um, with fear and reverence and awe, came before God and pleaded to him on behalf of other people. Okay? If you remember the context of the Exodus passage, God is promising that he's going to make a great name out of Moses because he's just fed up with these other people. He's like, I'm just going to, I'm going to give all my blessings to you. And Moses, the most humble man who ever lived, actually argues with God and said, please don't take, don't take your blessing away um, like you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Um, and if you have a New, New American Standard Bible, it actually says in verse 14, so... Uh, in the King James, it says, so the Lord relented. Um, or in the New King James, it says, so the Lord relented. In the New American Standard, it actually says, so God changed his mind from the harm that he had said he would do. So, so you actually have a passage in here where it appears that God is changing his mind. Um, and again, the point of the passage is not to tell us that God is actually um, a little bit more like us than we think, and he's actually a little bit lower, and we're a little bit higher, and he actually really respects our counsel. That's not it at all. It's that God is a Father, God condescends to our level and he invites us into his presence to pray to him. And, and in fact, in these two passages prove that our prayers, our supplication, our counsel can actually turn the, the direction in which um, we observe him moving. Right? It's, it, it's all, it's all, it, he's all immutable. He's got he's, what he's going to do. But we actually have... Um, access to the throne room, we actually have the ability to talk to him and to have real results as, re as a result of that. So, okay, we're going to get to the family worship thing. Um, uh, so uh, before, we, before we get into the nuts and bolts of family worship, I just want to cover the why. Like, why do we have family worship in the first part? And so for these first two passages, um, they speak of God seemingly changing the course of human history because of the council um, the counsel or the supplication of one of his saints. Um, and again, we know the first principle of, go of God is that he never changes. Um, so let's go ahead and take a look at Matthew uh, chapter 11. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 7 through 11. Matthew chapter 7, or sorry, Matthew chapter 11, and verses 7 through 11. Um, okay, so this is Jesus talking about uh, John the Baptist. And uh, he says, And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, John the Baptist, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went, what went ye out uh, for to see? A prophet. Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy faith, face, which shall prepare the way before you. Now this is the key passage. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
So we can, uh, we can extrapolate from this passage that John the Baptist was greater than Moses, that he was greater than Abraham. However Jesus meant by greater, he's, he was greater in some way. Um, and yet, he says, notwithstanding, in the new kingdom, even the least in the new kingdom are going to be greater than John the Baptist, who was, at, up to that point, the greatest one that was ever born. And so if John was the greatest born of women, um, that means that he was greater than Abraham and Moses, and both of them um, were able, quote-unquote, able to entreat God and have their prayers answered. So we are living um, in, in, in an already, not yet, kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. It's not fully fulfilled for sure. You look outside, you see lots of wickedness for sure. But we're living in an already but not yet kingdom, and we are the kings and priests in that kingdom. And God's, Jesus is promising that even the least among us is greater than John the Baptist. And so, so here's the connection. We have been given tremendous covenantal privilege, and we, unlike the rest of the world, have been given God's ear every time we come before him in prayer and in worship. And so therefore, such a place of honor should mean that all of our activity should be geared toward the honor and glorification of Christ. That's what all of our activity should be toward because we have been given this tremendous privilege. To, much, to whom much is given, much will be uh, required. And so because we've been given this gracious privilege from Christ, not because of anything we did, we all know ourselves well enough to know that, that God loves us in spite of everything who we are, everything that we do. But because of the gracious work of Christ, he has made us, he has made even the least of us greater than John the Baptist, who he said was the greatest born of all women. So that is my, that is, I hope that that um, is a um, encouraging why behind the why we should do family worship to begin with. We should do this not because um, we need to just simply go through the motions or because we simply, it's the right thing to do, although it is the right thing to do, and sometimes you do just have to go through the motions because it's not always going to feel great. Um, but the reason why we do it is because we have access to God, and Christ bought that access for us. And so it's our thankfulness to Him, our gratefulness to Him that we can approach Him 24-7, like, we're, we're going we're gonna to get into the quintessential uh, family worship passage here, and you'll see that there is, unless you're asleep, there's no time not to, not to be worshiping the Lord. So, so I'm going to get into the how now. Um, does anybody have any questions or concerns about anything that I've said so far? Okay, great. Um, okay, so quintessential uh, family worship passage. It comes up more or less in two different spots in Deuteronomy 6 and then Deuteronomy 11. Um, I'm going to read in, in full Deuteronomy 6, uh, and then Deuteronomy 11 th just adds a, a, a nice little thing to, to remember. But Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
Uh, now, Deuteronomy 11, um, I won't read the whole thing, but it says, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, um, and bind them as a sign on your hand. He kind of go, goes on um, and, and repeats himself. But uh, you're to lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Um, so, so the how of family worship begins with the idea that every interaction um, with each other, uh, if, you have ki- if, you, if you don't have kids, our kids aren't in the house anymore. Every interaction you have with each other or with your children should be an opportunity to teach one another, teach your children to lay up the words of God in your heart and in your soul. Okay? Every interaction is an opportunity. Um, sometimes you're, you're doing work or you're doing whatever you're doing. We have busy, busy lives. You're not only going to be talking about that, but there's every, every, every moment that you're awake, there is, you need, we need to be ready for opportunities to come along to teach our children to lay up the words of God in our hearts and in our souls. I meant to start with this, but I just now remembered. Um, everything I'm talking about tonight is, uh, is, is things that I need to grow in, and that's why I'm talking about it. Uh, family worship is like something that's very dear to my heart because I have s- just so much room to grow. <laughs> um, so so if, if, what I, if what I say seems seems hard, it's because I'm trying to challenge myself too. This is, this is the kind of thing where you can get better at family worship, but you can never arrive um, until we, we, we worship God face to face. So um, so anyways, that, that was just, uh, th- when I say every interaction, I do mean every interaction. Not every interaction is going to be, but every op- interaction, there is an opportunity for it. And as parents, we need to be on guard to be ready for those. Um, Okay, now the next part is the other reason why I started with those two passages um, is that we, we need to remember that the fact that God allows us to be his, again, quote-unquote, counselors, uh, the reason why he lets us be counselors um, is because he is a father and he wants us, he, want, he does want to have that, that relationship where we come to him and we ask him to change things. We ask him to have his will be done, but Lord, uh, if you would change things in this direction, that would, um, we, see, we would see your kingdom grow because of that. Um, but he has not given anybody um, who, who's a Christian an option as to whether or not to, to take on this role or not. Okay? If you're a Christian, you then become a counselor, again, air quotes, counselor of God, not because God needs your counsel, but because God is a father and wants you to counsel with him. Uh, and so parents, we must realize that not only must we teach our children diligently, so the passage says, teach your children diligently, not only must we teach our children diligently, but we are qualified to teach our children diligently. We have the authority and we have every qualification necessary to teach our children the precepts of God. And part of us teaching our children the precepts of God might be just making them sit still and listen to the pastor. That, that is teaching them diligently. But, we, but I have not talked to thousands of parents on this, but time and time again, I see parents who disqualify themselves in their own hearts or in their own heads because they think they don't have the authority to do, to do what they must do. And, and not only must they do that, but, they, but God has prom- already promised them success in it. So, so not only must we teach our children diligently, but we can. Okay, um, okay so let's just real quick, let's, uh, let's kind of expo- exposit uh, just lightly uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So first we're told um, that we must teach our children uh, diligently. 
Um, and so that is, that is kind of the overarching, uh, the overarching idea here. Um, uh, we teach them diligently so that they lay up these words, the words of the law of God, in their heart and in their soul. Now, when should we do this? Well, the, the passage tells us. It says, talk of them in your home and outside your home. So as long as you always talk about God inside your home and outside your home, then you're good. You've got it covered, okay? Um, and then you also start the day with them um, talking about God, and you end the day talking with them about God. So it appears that this passage does give us a break to sleep. Um, we don't have to be training diligently our children when we're asleep, but that's about the only time that parents are allowed to not diligently train um, their parents. And um, Elizabeth can tell, can tell you that she's very good about uh, even training them diligently in the middle of the night. I'm less good at that. I'm a bit more of a hard sleeper, but even but my wife even trains them diligently in the middle of the night. Uh, now, how should we do this? We know the when. Um, we, we, know, we, we should do it uh, when we start the day and when we end the day uh, and everything in between. It's not, just a, it's not just a prayer in the morning and a prayer in the evening. It's like you start it, you continue it, and then you finish it in the evening. Um, you, do, you do it when you're in your home, you do it when you're outside your home, and then you're good. And then it also says we bind them um, as a sign upon the hand, frontlets between the eyes, we write them upon the posts of our house, and we write them upon the gates of the city. So these are visual reminders. The how are visual reminders of who we belong to and who we serve. Now, Christians don't wear the little beads in, in, front, of our, in front of our face. We don't need to. We have our baptism. Jesus put his name on our foreheads, and that means that we can remember our baptism, we can look to our baptism, and we can remember who we belong to. Um, the hand and the forehead, those are, you, you probably recognize those. Those, those um, are, hand and the forehead are, are denoted as Christians, or um, in the book of Revelations, they're the ones that have the mark of the beast, hand and the forehead. And so those things go, those things go together, but we don't need the, the externals because we have our baptisms. Um, the post in the house is glorifying your own home. Uh, this would be home decor. This would be, uh, of course, where we, we have this great history of church architecture or even, or even home architecture. If you, if you look at the house Elizabeth and I built, it's built in the shape of a cross. It's a, got a cruciform shape, not because there's a verse to do it, but because that was just something I wanted our house to be in the shape of a cross. It doesn't have to be. Um, so that's the uh, writing the law of God on the post of your house. Uh, and then the gates refer to the probably to the gates of the city, declaring and reminding all who enter and exit that this city worships the one true God. So this is the idea of binding signs upon your hand or forehead um, is simply to show that everything, uh, that show that in, that in everything the law of God is your chief delight. Um, to do uh, successful family worship, um, again, 24-7 family worship, you've got to cultivate the right mindset. You have to cultivate the right loves for the good. Uh, and you also have to cultivate the good, uh, you have to cultivate the right hatred for evil. Christians don't cultivate enough hatred. We need to hate what is evil. First, and, and, and the way we do this, uh, and the way it affects family worship, is that when we love what is good, and when we hate what is evil, then we know what to teach our children to love and to hate. But if we don't know what we're supposed to love and the things that we're supposed to hate, how are we supposed to teach our children? Uh, the, the, the He Gets Us campaign is getting a lot of press. Thankfully, it's all bad. Um, but the reason why it's bad, the reason why that whole thing is bad is because, um, because they start with the premise that Jesus never taught to hate. And, and Jesus absolutely taught to hate. 
He, he taught us to hate the things that were evil. He taught us to love the things that were good. And if we don't hate what is evil and love what is good, we won't be able to teach our children. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I know this is obvious and you'll probably be bringing it up. Would you suggest that one of the good teaching moments is also like, say, you're driving in your car and there's some pretty poor traffic happening, or you're talking to your banker or whatever? Yes. Your boss and employee or something like that. And you know how to give you all the ribs? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So the question is um, inside your house, outside your house, what about uh, driving in your car? What about at the bank with the banker, with an employee? Absolutely. It's one of the benefits to is having your kids with you as much as you possibly can because you get to expose them to all kinds of different opportunities um, for them to um, see you interact with the world and love what is good and hate what is evil. So, absolutely. Yes. Um, so, it says. It starts out with saying the, to teach diligently your children, but then it says, and shall talk of the rules, and then starts listing a bunch of other things you should do. So I guess I've always heard this all referring to teaching children, but how do, or how do we come to the stance that all of these commands are specifically talking about teaching our children? Sure. So it's like, teach your children diligently, and talk about the Lord's law, and... Yep. Find, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Great question. So the question is, um, in, in this particular passage, why, um, why do we assume it's just for children? And, and, I, and I, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's, I don't think we need to assume it's just for children. Um, and, and in fact, I think that there's some assumptions built into this passage. Um, number one, this is talking to fathers, the heads of household, and it is saying that this is how you're supposed to teach them. And so implied in that is that you are supposed to know it yourself. So you're supposed to study it, and then you can teach it to your children. Paul has a, a similar passage in, very famous, very controversial passage in Corinthians, where he, he tells women that they must be silent in church, and if they have questions, they can ask their husbands at home. Well, built into that is that, husbands, you better know, you better know how to answer your wife when she, when she comes to you. So yeah, definitely this is not a passage that is saying this is just a bunch of kids' rules, um, but what, it, what it's saying is that this is how... I think, they're, they're, I think you could answer that in two ways. Number one is the children, of course, goes without saying, but they're the future. They need to know these things. It needs to get into their bones if, if they're going to actually love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But also, you're a teacher. What's the best way to learn something? Is to teach it. So if you're teaching it to your children, you're also didactically changing yourself as well. That, I'm not sure if that answers the question or not, but... Uh, so I was meaning more like, how do we know this is specifically instructions for teaching children, rather than like instructions to me on how to live my life in general. Sure. But I'm talking to people who I'm not related to. Yeah. yeah, I think he's making the case that this is the law of the Lord, and you need to teach it to your children, but this is the law of the Lord for everybody. So I, I, if, if anything, it's just like, don't forget about the kids. You know, there's not a height requirement for learning about the law of God. You teach it to them. It's... Elizabeth and I like to talk about how, uh, well, actually, this, this relates to you, Maya. It's just, you took Mandarin. You know how hard Mandarin is. And yet, there are two-year-olds that can speak Mandarin, 
Why, why is that? Because their, their parents speak to them in Mandarin. And if your parents speak to you in Mandarin, you're gonna learn how to speak Mandarin without even realizing that you're learning how to speak Mandarin. And so part of, we're gonna run out of time very quickly here. Part of 24-7 worship is speaking Mandarin to your children. Don't wait for any type of ideal situation, ideal age, don't wait for them to be old. Don't, don't wait for any of these things because they are, they are meant to speak the language of God their whole life. And, and the goal of parents, uh, unless you're converted later in life, the goal of every par- Christian parent should be that your kids never know a day that they don't love Jesus. They, they've always been taught to love Jesus. Kind of like uh, Pastor Hatcher said on Sunday. It's like we tell our kids, hey kids, this is where we're going. Follow dad. Follow dad and mom. That's, that's, that's what we do. Um, so, let me just give a, a, a couple um, practical things. Pick a time. Um, start with prayer. Okay? Pick a time. Start with prayer. You should always be singing. Um, read God's word. Sing some more. And end with prayer. It can be as simple as that. Um, if, you, if you pick a time that your kids know to expect, then they'll actually remind you. That really helps us. In the Stout House, we have two main um, uh, dedicated, set-aside times of family worship. Matins and Vespers is what we call it. Matins is in the morning, um, Vespers is in the evening. We're a house of 10 children, so um, I'm, going to read, I'm going to read you what our ideal is, not what, we ha- what happens every day. Uh, but Matins in the Stout House, uh, generally what we do um, is every kid has their own copy of the book of Proverbs. So even, even the kids that can't read, they have their own, pa- they have their own type of or book, book of Proverbs. Um, we, we pass them around, everybody has one. Uh, and then I ask someone to offer a prayer of illumination. Uh, and a prayer of illumination is just you asking God, show us what your word means. Show us what your word means. Sometimes I'll offer it. Sometimes I'll ask kids to do it. And then we'll each read between one and four verses. For the kids who can't read, uh, uh, a kid will actually read out what they're supposed to say, and they just repeat it back. And then uh, whether we've read through five verses or the whole chapter, um, we'll talk through the implications of one or more multi, uh, of, of these verses. Uh, and then what I generally try to take as my responsibility is giving them, them application. So how do I actually take this word and apply it to my life today? Um, uh, and then we generally close with a prayer of blessing and of supplication for the day. And so, um, and, and I would encourage you to to. You know, dads, like most things, if you run it, if you're the driving force behind it, everybody will fall in line a whole lot easier than if mom, mom is trying to be the one to do it and you're reluctant. Um, however, once everybody's doing it, uh, it's really good to have your, your kids hear your, hear your wife, tell, uh, to hear, hear her talk about scripture, to hear how she is applying these, uh, the verses in her life, Um, And so make sure, dads, that you're running it, but make sure that you're also including um, your brides uh, in the prayers and in the application and things like that where appropriate. So, Les. So I I just really really appreciate you you laying that out. Because I think a lot of people think worship is nothing, is is just singing. Right. You know, even churches will say, well, now we're going to have our worship time, and then we'll move into whatever the rest of the liturgy is. And I appreciate you, demonstrating, you know, reminding yeah. us that it's, it's the whole thing yeah. is worship. Yeah, thank you, Les.
Well, I got through about a third of what I had <laughs> ready. So until we have to wait a couple more months, but uh, this is great. Um, Pastor Ventura, you want to yeah, get we'll, your? 